You see, I, I believe, and what I want to show you today is reconciliation is powerful to watch and it's profound to experience even when both parties are guilty of wrong. We look at it and we say, wow, that's incredible. But when one of the parties is innocent, it goes to a whole new level and we can't comprehend it. It's shocking to us. When we see a lady like Eva Kaur, who's another perfect example of this, she was an Auschwitz survivor who had been the, the victim of medical experience, experiments and all kinds of other abuses and suffering in that prison camp. When we see her years lady, later forgive the SS officer who was responsible for her torture and who was actually an accessory in 300,000 thousand murders including those of her family and friends and when you see Eva go up to this man say I forgive you and then receive a kiss you're like what in the world is that we don't even know what to do with that the greater the wrongdoing is the more one-sided the wrongdoing is the more incredible and the more profound and the more beautiful the reconciliation becomes as it follows. You, you, you see this? You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Our passage today in Colossians 1 is all about our reconciliation to God. And what Paul wants us to see, what I want to show you today, is how this reconciliation is more incredible. It's more profound. It's more beautiful than any other reconciliation in the history of the world. And if we don't see that, if, if we don't get What's actually going on here will never be moved by the forgiveness of God. We'll never be moved by the mercy of God. We'll never be touched or changed by the grace of God. But if we do see it, it actually has the power to transform everything. That's what we prayed for at the very beginning, that our hearts would be able to grasp it internally, that we'd be able to see it, we'd be enlightened, to be able to understand what is Otherwise, ununderstandable. The love of Christ for us. Why is our reconciliation so incredible, you might ask? Well, let me unpack it for you because that's what Paul does for us. First, our reconciliation is so incredible because of the perfection of Christ's holiness. In other words, our reconciliation to God is so incredible and it's so amazing because of how innocent he was in the conflict. Look back at verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That word fullness is really important because <laughs> I love Paul. It's actually meant to be an intentional slap in the face to the Gnostics because this word fullness in the Greek is the word that they used for all of the thousands of lesser gods that created the, the totality of deities that you had to worship if you wanted spiritual fullness. And so... He's, he's talking about our reconciliation, and this is very encouraging, but you, don't forget that he's addressing false teaching at the same time. And all of the Christians in Colossae, were, they were buying into the fact that you had angels and demons and powers and all of these things that you had to worship in order to, to be spiritually vibrant and alive. So Paul takes their word for the totality of all the deities, and he said, listen, Jesus isn't just a member. He isn't one of those gods that makes up the fullness. He is the fullness all of the fullness of God dwells in him. You see that? 
He says it even more explicitly in the next chapter, which we're going to see. Chapter 2, verse 9, for in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Fullness means all of God dwells in Christ. All of his attributes, all of his power, all of his might, all of his wisdom, all of his love and goodness and grace existed in Christ. One commentator said, Jesus is the exhaustion of God. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus means that he was perfectly pure, though. Perfectly holy. He was the sovereign ruler of the universe. We, We saw this last week. He wasn't just the origin of creation. He was the sustainer of creation. He's the destiny of creation. He's the one who spoke it into existence out of his imagination with his word. He's the one that holds together by his word. And he's the the one that it's all moving toward. And everyone's going to bow at his feet and worship him. He's everything. All things were made by him, through him. And when we begin to grasp this, when we begin to see his holiness, do you know what happens? It's not good. We actually begin to see ourselves as we really are. (laughs) Isaiah when he got the vision of the holiness of God emanating from the throne room of heaven, do you know what he did? He fell flat on his face and he cried out, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. For who can stand in the presence of God? You see the holiness of God, the perfection of God, and then you start to see your weakness Ultimately, you start to see your sin. Which means we actually begin to see that our conflict with God is one-sided. It's on us. That leads to the second reason our reconciliation to him is so incredible, and that's because of the depth of that sin. Look back at verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. In other words, we weren't at war with God because of God. We were at war with God because we love our own sin. Now, we can say that freely here because we're an honest church, okay? And I can say that I struggle with that, and I know you do because we're all the exact same. We love our sin, okay? Why are we alienated from? Why are we hostile to God? Because we can't stop doing evil things. Because we like them. John 3.19 says it this way, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is what you and I really need to understand and grasp today. We weren't hostile to God because he's unholy. We're hostile to God because we hate the fact that he is holy. We didn't hate him because he's unloving. We hated him because of the fact that he was perfect in his love. And we weren't, and it exposed it. We didn't alienate ourselves from him because he didn't want what's best for us. We alienated ourselves from him because we wanted to determine what was best for us apart from him. Adam and Eve, you could be as gods. 
You can have the good life without the giver of life. You can have the kingdom without the king. How about you be the king and you be the queen? Uh, we all buy into that. So we ran as hard as we could. We ran as far as we could away from him. R.C. Sproul put it like this in his book, The Holiness of God. He said, holiness provokes hatred. The greater the holiness, the greater the human hostility toward it. It seems insane. No man was ever more loving than Jesus Christ. Yet even his love made people angry. His love was a perfect love and a transcendent and holy love, but his very love brought trauma to people. The kind of love that is so majestic, we can't stand it. See, most of us like to think of right and wrong and good and evil on a, on a bell curve. For all of you students, you live and die by that bell curve. <laughs> okay. At least I did um, when I was there. Uh, on one end, you got Jesus and all of his perfection and all of his righteousness, and he's like the best of the best. He's the cream of the crop. He's never sinned. He's over here. He's the A++ guy, okay? And then on the other end of the line, you've got, just think of the worst person you can. We always just say Hitler because we're lazy. Let's just say Hitler, okay? Um, genocidal maniac, uh, tried to take over the world and kill as many people as he could in the process, He's a really bad guy. He's getting the F. And so you've got Hitler over here, and you've got Jesus over here, and then, and then you've got us. And we're not Jesus, and we'll be the first to admit to that. But we're also not Hitler. And so we're just like the average. We're the C students. We're the C sinners. And so we're like in this bell curve, and we're just like convinced that's good enough. Cs get degrees, right? That's how we live our lives. I can't tell you how many times I have justified my own sin by saying things like, well, at least I've never done any of those things. At least I'm not like that guy. I'm actually really good at finding people in this church and being like, well, at least I'm not like that guy. And so are you. <laughs> right? I told you we were being honest today. I know I'm not Jesus, but at least I've never stolen anything before. I wrote that down and then I laughed because I used to be a kleptomaniac before I was saved. <laughs> so then I'm like, okay, well, um, I never stole anything big. You know, I never robbed a bank. I never used a gun. You know, I was stealing baseball cards and Pokemon Pogs, which was a thing in the 90s. And I'm like, okay, good, I'm back in the middle. Okay. What about the Ten Commandments, guys? How well have you done at keeping God's law? Oh, let's walk through them together. I got, a, I got them on the screen, all right? <laughs> now, if you're like me, you'd say, well, okay, number one, uh, have no other God before me. Don't worship any false gods. And I'm like, sweet, I haven't made an idol recently. And then I'm like, oh, wait, I do that every day. I love lesser glory. I chase lesser beauty. I go after sin, convinced it's going to lead me to flourishing. My priorities are so out of whack. It's like God's supposed to be God, but then I put family, I put, can you believe ministry? All of these other things above him. I'm worshiping other things 
before. Ah, oh, man, okay, I, I'm not doing great at that. Let's, let's move on then, okay? Well, at least I've never taken his name in vain. Oh. Do you know what that actually means? It doesn't mean you swear. Um, like, GD is not taking God's name in vain. Car- taking, taking God's name literally in the Hebrew means carrying his name. Okay, so taking his name in vain means that you, you carry his name with you for your own advantage and your own glory. And you say things like, hey, I'm praying for you because it makes you look good and you're never going to pray for him. That's taking God's name in vain. Um, you're making yourself look more spiritual than you are. You, you post a photo on Instagram of you and your coffee and your Bible, but you actually weren't reading it. You were posting on Instagram. And, and that's actually taking God's name in vain because you're using him to advance your name. You're carrying his name in a way that doesn't honor him. It honors you. Have you ever done that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's move on. We're struggling here. All right. Um, at least I've never used the day set aside for rest and worship to advance my own kingdom. Oh, again. Okay. <laughs> struggling here. Um, I know we got some grinders in the room. You're struggling, too. Um, okay, let's move on. At least I've never disobeyed my parents. And now we're all like, come on, man. Why did I come to church today? All right, let's move on. Oh, this is my favorite one. At least I've never killed anyone. Yes. Check it off the list. And like, I've, at least I've never committed adultery. And you're like, check. I'm like two for 10. And then you go to Matthew five and Jesus is like, listen, I know the law says don't murder, but if you've ever hated anyone in your heart, you're a murderer. I'm like, ah, oh, erase that check. Also, <laughs> you've heard it said don't commit adultery, but if you've ever lusted after anyone with your eyes or thought about it in your mind, you're an adulterer. My like, dang it. Erasing that check too. You shall not steal. We've already established this one. Guys, you know it doesn't matter if you steal someone's money, if you steal someone's car, if you steal someone's baseball cards or Pokemon Pogs, or if you steal your boss's time, or if you steal someone's trust. It's all theft. What about how you act at work? Has anyone ever slacked off at work? Like, ever? (laughs) March Madness, you got the little, like, eight screens on your desktop, and you have the magic button, which is a thing that they invented for us to hit this button, and your screen goes back to a fake worksheet, like a spreadsheet. So if your boss is walking by, you hit that button, and it's a spreadsheet. I probably shouldn't have told you about that. YouTube, Twitter. When I was in high school, I worked at a factory uh, for one summer, worst summer of my life. And uh, we made uh, library furniture. No sun, hot, dank. My manager was this like deep country guy who was obsessed with country music. He had mountains of tobacco canisters. He always had it. I hate country music. I mean, some of you are like, this sounds like heaven. Um, I, I was just like miserable. And um, my, me and my twin and one of our best friends from the soccer team all got a job at this factory. And uh, we figured out how to, how to get by without working. And so what we would do is we would get a tool. 
and we'd just be sitting around talking, big factory. And um, we had figured out a code if, uh, if we ever saw Billy. What a great name for Deep South, you know, tobacco chewing country guy. Billy, if we ever saw Billy walking by, we'd be like, manager, manager. And then we would get our tools, and it didn't matter if there was a bolt nearby or a nail, nail nearby. We'd just start turning stuff. <laughs> and if he had looked, like, for a, more than a split second, he would have seen we were turning nothing. <laughs> we had tools on wood doing nothing. We figured out how to do it. We were stealing time. Lastly, pull those Ten Commandments back up. You shall not covet. You shall not want what other people have, what belongs to them, their clothes, their toys, their jobs, their cars, their spouses, their kids, their lack of suffering. You shall not covet. Can I tell you a secret? Every single one of us have broken every single one of those things more times than we can count. There is no bell curve of righteousness. Romans 3, 19 through 23 puts it bluntly. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. That means the law shuts us up. He's being real nice. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. There's no distinction. This is bad news. For all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. When you measure yourself against other people, you get the bell curve. But when you go to the law and you measure yourself against what God says is holy, you realize you're in big trouble. When you go to the Ten Commandments and you measure yourself against his standard of holiness... There's no distinction. There are only people who are alienated from God because of their sin. We read the story of a, a woman forgiving the murderer of her family. We read the story of an Auschwitz survivor graciously accepting the kiss of her abuser. And we think, how could they do that? And rightfully so. But what we don't understand is that that is exactly what God has done for us. We're the murderers. We're the thieves. We're the liars. We're the adulterers. We're the idolaters. We don't deserve anything from him except judgment. And yet... In the most shocking twist of all time, we didn't get what we deserved. Instead of getting his justice, we got his justification. 
righteous. Instead of getting his wrath, we were welcomed into his family. Rather than getting condemnation, he met us with open arms full of compassion. Rather than his loathing, we were swept under by the tidal wave of his love. How can this be true? How can so great a reconciliation actually take place? And that leads to the third reason it's so incredible. Because it was accomplished through the death of Christ himself. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by his blood, by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So how could God make enemies friends? How could he replace alienation with adoption? How could he say that you're righteous even though you've broken every single one of his commands? <laughs> it's because his son was crushed on the cross. He took your condemnation. He bore the wrath of, the, of his father so that you could be forgiven. Romans 3.23, I've already read the bad news, but it, it doesn't end with the bad news. Let's keep reading it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't stop there and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's how God reconciles sinners to himself. Not only is Christ perfect in his holiness, not only are we dead in our sin, but the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one who created and sustains and is currently moving everything toward a, a glorious purpose at his feet, satisfies the Father's wrath by bearing our punishment in our place. Is this too good to be true or what? And yet it is true. I was thinking about it, the way that Paul frames this whole thing. He wants us to get the magnitude of it. The whole first part of it is telling us who Jesus is, is God. It's his deity. And his deity is framing his death. So if you think about it, the one who enabled the soil to receive a seed and the one who created the sun and the rain to cause that seed to grow and turn into a tree hangs on a tree. That's how Paul's framing this. The one who covered 70% of the earth with water and formed the vast oceans and the thunderous waterfalls and the great lakes cries out on the cross, I thirst. That's what Paul wants us to see here. The one who created mankind in his own image out of the overflow of his love and delight just because he wanted to be with us so that we could enjoy his presence and worship him forever is mocked and beaten and torn and rejected and betrayed and abandoned and crucified by the very men and women he created to know and be known by. 
Yes, he is the image of the invisible God, and yes, he is the firstborn of all creation. He is the supreme ruler of all things, and that's what makes his death so shocking. He made peace through his blood shed on the cross, verse 20. As one author put it, the cross is the ultimate evidence that there is no length the love of God will refuse to go in affecting reconciliation. There is no length that the love of God will not go to chase you down and bring you back. Because while you were a sinner, even while you were an enemy, he loved you. What kind of God is that? One of my favorite stories that captures our redemption well is the story of a young boy in his favorite boat. The boy's name was Tom, and Tom spent hours crafting this little sailboat. And, uh, and he, after it was all done, he, he took it down to the river. He tied some string to it. And uh, thank you, Caroline, that was my phone. <laughs> Perfect timing. Um, he, he goes down to the river, and he gently puts the boat on the water, and he carefully lets go of the string so that the boat can sail and it works perfectly. He's a master craftsman. So he lays down in, in the sun and the warmth of the noonday and he just enjoys his creation. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a strong current swept up his little boat and started taking it down the river. And so he jumped up and he tried to pull it back, but the line snapped and the boat started racing down the river, and so he ran as fast as he could to try to chase it, and he ran and ran until he couldn't see his boat anymore, and he had to give up. He spent the rest of the afternoon trying to find it, looking in every rock, in every branch, anything, any kind of debris that might have caught his little boat, and he never found it, and when it got dark, he had to go home. But then a few days later, Tom spotted a boat that looked just like his little boat, in the window of a store on his way back from school. And so he raced over to the window and he looked to see if it was his boat and he found the markings and he found everything that identified. He said, that's my boat. And so he ran into the store and he found the manager. He said, that's my boat. I want my boat back. And the manager said, that's, that's great. I'm sorry. Someone else brought that in this morning. If you want that boat, you got to buy it and it cost a dollar. So the little boy ran home, dumped out his piggy bank counted all of the pennies and nickels and dimes. He had a quarter or two, which helped, and he found a dollar, and he got all of that change, and he ran back to the store, and he said, here's the dollar, you jerk. He didn't say that. He said, here's the dollar, and he grabbed his boat, and he started walking home, and as he was walking home, he hugged his boat, and he said these really profound words. He said, you are twice mine because I made you and because I bought you. I can't think of a better story that sums up this hymn in Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Jesus is the one who made you. What an imagination he has. We all look so different. All of the, what was it? I can't remember last Sunday's sermon, but the genetic code, all of that that's written in there. Anybody remember that number? It was like three trillion or something. No, 300. Ah, this is my memory for you. He made it all. And then, when Adam and Eve sinned and plunged us into sin, he lost us. 
said, I'm going to do anything it takes to get them back. Now Christ looks at us and he says, you are twice mine. I made you and I bought you. But when he bought us, it didn't cost a dollar. It cost his death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And so in order for Christ to get us back, he had to take our death. He had to take what we deserved on himself so that we could experience peace with God. And here's the thing I want you to see. I'm about to close. Some of you are hearing this for the first time. Some of you are hearing this for the hundredth time. There's a condition to reconciliation. Reconciliation is there and it's free, but it's only there for those who want it. It's only there for those who receive it. Look back at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The, the construction of that first sentence, if indeed you continue in the faith in the Greek, is actually constructed like Paul knows they're going to do it. He's essentially saying, if indeed you continue in the faith, and I know you will. If you keep believing the gospel, if you keep resting in Christ, if you keep holding fast to your salvation, live a holy life. Be steadfast. Walk worthy. He's made you holy. Now become what he's made you. He's made you blameless. Now live a blameless life above reproach. He's made you a son and a daughter and heir of glory. Now live like it. They're not mad at me. They're about to get baptized. <laughs> the thing about reconciliation is it's a gift from God. But if you want the gift, you have to receive the gift. Here's the thing about God. God has hidden himself enough so that if you don't want God, you won't find him. But he's revealed himself enough to where if you knock and if you seek, you'll find him. The same thing's true of reconciliation. It's there for you if you want it. If you don't want it, you'll never know it. Christ has done everything required to bring us back into his presence. But we have to receive it. It's an imperative. Isn't that interesting? The gift is a command. Reconciliation is a command. Paul says, I beg you, be reconciled to God. Do it. Receive it. It's there. He wants it. You can have peace with him. What are you waiting for? I beg you. Be reconciled to God. If you've already put your faith in Christ, which I know many of you have, keep doing it. Keep doing it. Live an honest and open, a pure life. We try to help you do that every single Sunday morning. I try to help you do that as your pastor. And we confess our sin every single Sunday here. You know why? Because we still struggle with it. It's Romans 7. Paul said, I found this to be a law. When I want to do something good, evil's right there. I don't know why, but every time I want to do something good, ah, oh, I just keep doing the things I hate. But then he said in Romans 8, it doesn't have to be that way. 
We can help each other. And we've got the Spirit to help us as well. And if we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, he'll set us free from those bodies of death. But every single week, we just come and acknowledge that we're weak. And without the Spirit, we can't do it. And without each other, we can't do it. So we're just going to do it together. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, you need to do it now. You need to do it today. I had some stuff in here. I think I'm going to take it out. I was debating it, and, uh, and I, I just think the Holy Spirit wants me to take it out. You're welcome. <laughs> Let me find a good place to close where I skip all that stuff. All right, here we go. Let me just close with a passage. 1 Corinthians 1.18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. My question for you today is, will you believe and will you receive? Would you stand as I close with this verse from Isaiah 1, verses 18 through 20? Bow your heads, close your eyes. Reason with me now. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I could make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be eaten by the sword. The mouth of the Lord has spoken.